0: Yes, I too have a second person with me. You may not see him, but I, I got the Spirit of God with me here. <laughs> and may he guide us into reading his word from Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 32, 28, verse, excuse me, Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. And that's on page 944 in our Bible from the back. Romans 8, 28 to 30. Amen. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: Let me lead us in prayer once more prior to the sermon. Father, we come to your word now and ask that you would speak through me to us for our great good. We pray that you would help us to understand exactly how you have saved us. Pray that you would give me the gifts of clarity, the gift of compassion, the gift of love for you and for this church the gift of biblical faithfulness that everything that I say would be in accord with the truth that is revealed in your word that you would guard me from error and protect me from saying things with a bad emphasis or an incorrect interpretation help us this morning to not just hear a lecture to not just attend a bible study but to hear our God speak to us directly, personally, from this your word. We ask for the glory of Jesus and our eternal good. Amen. Well, we're at the third sermon in this brief series that we're calling Saved. And if you've been tracking with us the last couple of sermons... It can be somewhat confusing what exactly, what part of salvation we're actually talking about. Because salvation is a huge concept in the Bible. I mean, one could argue that the point of the Bible is salvation. It's describing salvation at at the broadest level. But maybe it's helpful just for a couple of minutes to sort of set this series in its broader salvation context. So let me try to do this. When we speak about being saved or salvation, we can look at it from one of two vantage points, okay? The first vantage point would be to speak of Christ and what he has done to save us. In that, From that vantage point, we're talking about the accomplishment of redemption. What did Jesus, in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and current ascension to the right hand of God, what did that mean, and how did that act or that series of acts, that obedience that he performed during his life on earth, how did that save us? That is not what the series is talking about. All right. That is worth a whole sermon series. But when we talk about Jesus and what he did, we're talking about the historical purpose of God to save us. That is, what did he do in Jesus to achieve our salvation. We can speak of it as the accomplishment of redemption, like I said. But what's interesting about that is is that work is not altogether divorced from what we're talking about in this series. Because the amazing thing is everything that we talk about in this series of sermons, whether it be foreknowledge or predestination or justification, or calling, or glorification, the amazing thing is all that happened to Jesus first. According to the Bible, Jesus got saved. Now, he didn't get saved the way we get saved. He didn't have any sin to be saved from. He wasn't, He didn't have to have a Savior provided for him, but... He entered into our experience such that everything that happens to us in Christ happened to Christ first. So when we read the Bible, we hear things like this: Jesus Christ was called Hebrews chapter ten, verses five to seven. Jesus Christ was justified, first Timothy three: sixteen. Jesus Christ was adopted, Psalm two seven, Romans one four, sermon last week. Jesus Christ was sanctified, Romans 6.10 and John 10.36. And yes, Jesus Christ was glorified, John 17.5. Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. So everything that we see in this passage of Romans 8.28-30 to 30, happened in Christ's experience, albeit differently. But it's amazing that what happens to us happened to Christ first. Now, that's all the historical background or the accomplishment of redemption. What this sermon is about is the other perspective, namely the application of Christ's work to us personally. How does what he did benefit us? Mark Jones puts it this way. The gospel strictly considered has in view Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and current intercession. The gospel largely considered also has in view the application of Christ's redemption, which includes all of our saving benefits. And that's what we're talking about in this sermon series. That gospel largely considered, the application of Christ's work to us personally. What saving benefits come to us as a result of our union with Christ by faith? That's what we're talking about. It's essential. The foundation of our salvation, without which there could be no saving benefits, is Christ's work, his life, his death for us, his resurrection. That's the gospel strictly considered. But the gospel largely considered also has in view the application of what he did to us and the benefits that flow from that. And that's what this series is about. So this series is about being saved. It is about how we got saved. But we don't, we, you won't hear a lot in this sermon series about Christ's work on the cross. Because it's talking about the benefits that flow from that work. I hope that clarifies things a little bit. If not, I'm totally confused you. And I'm so sorry for that. I just prayed for clarity. And we'll see what the Lord does with that. So, We're on calling this morning. The third word that shows up in verse 30. I should say, the third word that shows up between verses 29 and 30. Two weeks ago, Pastor Ted walked us through the, the larger context of Romans eight twenty-eight to 30, and he spoke specifically on predestination. We see that in verse 30. Those whom he predestined. And the week before that, Pastor Jonathan talked about the word foreknew or foreknowledge. Those are things that God has done in history, actually in eternity, not in history, not human history at least, in eternity past to purpose salvation for us. And we come this morning to the actual experience of it. What happens initially to us when we get saved, when we become a Christian, when we Believe in Christ by faith. When we repent of sin, what is going on in our human experience? Calling is going on in our human experience. This word that we're going to look at this morning. Now, calling shows up, or the word called shows up twice in this brief series of verses. It's in verse 28 and it's in verse 30. Notice verse 28. We know that for those who God... Who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So then calling is right here in Romans 8 28 God moving in history to accomplish his eternal purpose, to save. That's what called according to his purpose means. But then we also see the word called in verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, there's the word, and those whom he called, he also justified. So we see this sequence of events, this order of events. He predestined, he called those whom he predestined, and he justified those whom he predestined. Now, justifications next week, callings this week, predestination was two weeks ago. So this calling is the event in our salvation that God does in between predestination and justification. In other words, God's purpose in eternity to save us was enacted in human, in our experience and in human history by this call of God. So calling then is God's activity to secure his predestining purpose in our human experience by creating the faith we need to be justified. Because as we'll learn next week, to be ju- we have to have faith to be justified. We have to believe in the work of Christ to be justified. Where does that come from? Calling is where it comes from. And that's going to be the, one of the points of my sermon this morning. So that means that the call of Romans 8.30 is not a general call to salvation. Now, that's biblical too. All right? The idea that we are called to salvation, that John 3.16 is true. Whosoever will may come and believe in Jesus. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price, Isaiah 55 says. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. The question is, is how do those people get willing to come? Whosoever will may come. Yes, but how's the will created? Calling, calling. Here's why this verse in Romans eight chapter, Romans eight thirty, cannot mean a general call to salvation. Because this call is inextricably linked to justification. In Romans 8.30, everyone who gets called gets justified. So then we have to have biblical categories here. We have to have different categories. We have to have a category for a general call to salvation, which is true. And we have to have a category for a specific or what we might call an effectual call to salvation. And the effectual call the call that results in justification that is enacted by God and secured by God is what we're referring to when we talk about calling this morning. We're not talking about calling as in vocational calling, God calling us to a specific sphere of ministry or life. We're not talking about a general call to salvation. We're talking about a purpose of God in the execution of predestination, which secures the inevitability of justification by creating faith in our lives, namely faith in Christ. Now, this is clear throughout other parts of scripture. Um, First Corinthians one, nine says that God has called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. So the view to calling is God is calling us with a specific purpose, namely into fellowship with Jesus, into unity with Jesus, into faith in Christ, into life with him and for him. That's the evidence of calling. If we are in fellowship with Jesus Christ, we have been called by God into that fellowship. 1 Corinthians one, nine, but it comes through the gospel. Second Thessalonians two 14. You were called through the gospel. Paul says, which is the message of Christ's work and his death and his life and his resurrection for us. So I hope I've, I've, that was my first point, by the way, I didn't announce that, but I was trying to explain calling the explanation of calling. So I'll just summarize it briefly in a definition. Then we're going to move on and look at some other scripture. So the explanation of calling, what is it? It is God's activity to secure his predestining purpose in our human experience, by creating faith in Christ. That's calling. That's how I'm defining it. Second point, illustration. So we've explained it, now let's illustrate it. And this is the most powerful, helpful text for me personally, explaining what calling is and how how it works in the life um, of a person. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians. If you're in Romans 8, you need to go ahead about four or five pages. And turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll start reading at verse... Start reading at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You noticed the word there, didn't you, in verse 24? Those who are called. Now let's just analyze what Paul's doing here. Paul is preaching the gospel indiscriminately to all people. He makes that clear in verse 21. We preach to save those who believe. So he's preaching to Jew and Gentile. Indiscriminately. Preaching Christ crucified. He says in verse 22, 23. We preach Christ crucified. So he's, he doesn't know who the called are. He doesn't know who the predestined are. He doesn't know those who have been foreknew. He preaches the gospel indiscriminately because we don't get access into the eternal counsels of God. So we, we speak the gospel indiscriminately to all people and he offers Christ to anyone who will believe, anyone who will receive Christ. He says in chapter two, verse one, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God and lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's just preaching the gospel to people in Corinth indiscriminately. And there's three groups with three different responses, right? In verse 22, there's the first group and second group. It says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. That is when he preaches to some people, there are some Jews standing there that say that's ridiculous. It's a stumbling block. It's ridiculous. You're talking to me about my Jewish Messiah dead and raised from the dead. No way. Our Messiah is presented in the old Testament as strong as establishing a great kingdom. He's not going to die. And they stumble over it. And then there's Greeks. Who seek wisdom. They're like. ah, That's one perspective. I don't think that's all the truth. I mean. Come on. We don't. It's a little bit naive to think that's everything. He's preaching it like it's everything. He's got this great boldness and. But he, but that's ridiculous. A man dying for the sins of the world, the Christ being crucified. What is this? Crucifixions for criminals. And they just stumble over it. Or in the language of first Corinthians one eighteen, the word of the cross is folly to them. It's folly. It's foolishness. So we get the Jews stumbling over it and we get the Gentile seeing it as foolishness. And then he says in verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we got some people stumbling over it Jews, we got other people considering it folly Gentiles, and we got some people considering it true. What Paul is saying, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What distinguishes the response of those people? Paul tells us to those who are called both Jew and Greek. Christ was the power of God and the wisdom of God. So everyone heard what Paul was preaching Some were rejecting it and others were receiving it. And what made the difference was the call of God in their life. So Paul teaches that when the gospel is preached, God calls some so powerfully that their hearts are changed by Jesus Christ and they embrace him in faith and love. That's what happens in our experience And this is really clear from the surrounding context. Just let's keep reading, okay? Keep going down to verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is God trying to do in the gospel? He's trying to humble humanity. He's trying to humble human pride. Look, you think this message is nothing? You you stumble over this message? You think this message is ridiculous and foolishness? I'm going to save the world through it. I'm going to call people to myself and they're going to believe that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he says in verse 26, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble, noble birth, but God chose what is foolish. And low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We can't boast if we're called this way. There is no ground for boasting. We weren't wise. We weren't powerful. We were just like everybody else here in the gospel, dead in our sin. And God graciously called us by granting us faith. And therefore, it eliminates human boasting. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. What could be clearer? Why are you in Christ Jesus? Because of him. Because of him. Because of him. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That passage 15 years ago when I was in, not quite 15 years ago, got to get my dates right, about 13 years ago, totally by God's grace decimated me and made me realize that the reason I was a Christian was not because of my intellectual hunches, not because of my inclination of desire, Not because I was more humble or more sensitive to my sin, but because God called me graciously to himself. So this call to these people in Corinth that made them receive Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God was not like the call of a pet where we say, here, here, boy, come here, come here. And they can walk away if they want. This is a call like Lazarus, come forth. Let there be light. And there's light. This is a call that is a summons that creates what it commands. So if we're Christians this morning, and the vast majority of us are, this is how you became one. God did it. We were spiritually dead. Christ and his word and his lifestyle and his promises meant very little to us. We didn't love him or trust him or enjoy him. We were dead to all these things. And then one day in hearing the gospel, whether it was preached or read or spoken to us from a friend. God called us and he rose us from the dead and love and joy in God became a reality in our lives for the very first time because God did it. It may have been shattering and cataclysmic, like a thunderbolt, turned you around right away. You know, decisively, almost the moment it happened. And there are others of us, it wasn't as thunderboltish, it was more quiet and not as easily cage rattling initially. It was like, as John Piper says, it was like a a blade of grass that creeped up through your driveway and split the sidewalk. Just this little blade of grass, but it cracked the concrete of our heart. So if you today can say from your heart, I embrace Jesus as the power of God and the wisdom of God in my life, you have been called and it has happened to you. And if you cannot say that, but you desire it and you want it, have it. Take it. It's yours if you have it and you want it. And so I invite you this morning, if you are outside of Christ or not sure whether or not you're in Christ, that you would come to Christ and that you would believe. Now, let me apply this. I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes or so just... Applying this in five ways to our life because this is not abstract doctrine. This is not like, oh, good, I learned a new theological word. Oh, good, I learned a new biblical idea. Oh, good, I was reminded of some good truth. No, this is meant to work itself out practically in our relationships with each other and also in our relationship with God. So I want to give us two ways that this matters to our relationship with other people and three ways that this matters to our relationship with God. Here we go. First, This is an extreme encouragement to evangelism. We have people in our lives that are outside of Christ and that apart from him are going to spend eternity in hell separated from him. And the call of God is meant to give you encouragement that no matter how hostile someone is, how indifferent someone is, how much they look like they don't care and are not interested, it's not up to them finally whether or not they're going to believe or not. It's up to God and with God and his powerful working through the gospel and through the call that he has put in the gospel by the power of the spirit, he can bring that person to new life and create faith where there isn't any. If we are dependent upon the fickle will of people, let's pack it in church. We're done. I'm not persuasive enough. I'm not nice enough. I'm not as intellectually sharp as I need to be to understand every movement of someone's decisions. But I am confident in the power of God to save. And if we believe that the gospel is power to save and that the the call is attached to the gospel, then we should speak it and pray that God will call people through it. Here's how Acts 2 puts it. Listen to this. As Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost for the promise, that is the promise of salvation is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Wait, Peter, I thought you believed in the call of God. Why are you pleading like that? Because that's how God calls God calls through people pleading. God calls saying, will you come to Christ? Christ wants you. He desires you. He will forgive you. He'll wipe your slate clean. He'll give you new life. Won't you have him? And God will call people through that. So Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation because everyone whom the Lord, our God calls, even those who are far off, he will bring to himself. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Every single one of them called. So that's what it does. It provides us with courage for evangelism. Because we have God's call on our side. We know that the decisive movement in a person's life will be God's call. And therefore we're encouraged to speak the gospel. Even when it met, it's met with a blank, huh? That's dumb. We don't stop talking. We don't stop loving. We don't stop listening. We don't stop being friends. We don't stop praying. Because we're confident that God can call. Second thing it produces in our lives is humility. Humility. And this is in relationships with us. So courage for evangelism and humility. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. If you got your Bible open to 1 Corinthians, continue going to the right. till you hit the book of Ephesians and look at chapter 4. And I'm not just pulling this out of my head, brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm actually going to the Bible and saying, how does God tell us the call is meant to work out? Every one of these passages you're going to see reference to the call of God. Ephesians four, verse one, therefore, I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there is a manner of life that's consistent with our call that we're called to walk worthy of. We've been called by God. Great responsibility is repla- placed on us in our lives. It matters the way we live, the decisions we make, the way we treat other people. It matters big time because we've been called. That's what Paul's saying. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I urge you, exhort you, command you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, which means that we can walk in a manner Unworthy. And that would be a life of pride and self reliance and bitterness and anger. Notice verse 2 with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Church unity, church humility. Church love, church gentleness, church patience, church long suffering and forbearing. The ability to do that is found in your awareness of the call of God in your life. God was patient with you. God was gentle with you. God was forbearing with you. God was eager to maintain relationship with you. And so he called you. We need to do that for each other not severing relationships, not cutting people off. Not being done with people. We need to bear with one another. Exercise patience toward one another. Why? Cuz God did that to us. That's why. And so and that's a manner, that's a way of life that's worthy of the calling with which we've been called. There is, I mean, if we want to walk worthy before the Lord of the gift that he has given us, then we're going to be patient. We're going to be humble. We're going to be loving. We're going to be forbearing. We're not going to be quick to judgment. We're going to be eager to maintain unity. And that's, that's, that's our relationships with brothers and sisters. And that's clear. So that is evangelism and humility. Our relationship to a believer and an unbeliever are both affected by the, the call of God in very practical ways. Now let's move on to our relationship with God. The first thing that the call of god should do for you in your relationship with god is it should give you profound assurance that he loves you it should give you profound and unmistakable and unshakable assurance romans 11:29 said that, says that the call of god is irrevocable that is he can't be repealed he's not going to take it back if he's called you he's not going to say "Eh, no way disconnect don't want him anymore if he called you, according to Romans eight thirty, which we're going to get through, he's going to glorify you. So God does not reverse or repeal or cancel his call. And remember, God's call to you is a personal call that created faith in Christ. If God loved you and when God invited you to this salvation banquet, he didn't just send out a mass mailing the world saying to whom it may concern you're invited to attend the salvation banquet that I'm offering in Jesus Christ no he got in the car he drove to your front door he walked in he picked you up he put you in the car he drove you to the banquet he gave you a new set of clothes and he set you down at the right hand of his son does God love you of course he loves you he called you He resurrected you from spiritual death. Does not knowing this create in you a deep confidence that God does indeed intend to pursue you with mercy and grace all the days of your life and work everything together for your good? Most certainly. He called me. How can he not love me? How can he not be committed to my eternal good? How can I not be assured? So the call of God is meant to give you a deep security that could not be enjoyed if you just believed that God simply designed a general way of salvation with no particular persons in view and finally left it us up to us of who would belong to salvation. That's not very loving. But it is loving if God got in the car, drove to your house, picked you up and brought you himself. And that's exactly what he did in our salvation. God was actively, actively, actively involved in securing and creating your faith and so we can be assured of our relationship with him the second way that it should affect our relationship with god is godliness it should produce holiness of life in our in our lives second peter 1:10 second peter chapter 1 verse 10 therefore brothers be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What's he talking about? These qualities, practicing these qualities. They're listed in verse 8 and verse 5. For this reason, verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling. How do we confirm our calling? By making every effort to pursue Christ and put to death sin. That's how we confirm our calling. You want to know if God's called you? How are you dealing with sin? How are you attacking sin in your life? How are you pursuing holiness? Are you making it a goal to fight against the flesh, the world, the devil? Pursuing God and his ways and Christ and his ways. And holiness of life and godliness of conduct and humility. Are we making that a red hot pursuit? If we are, we're called. And if we're not, We might not be. That's why Peter says, confirm it, confirm it, be diligent, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And we make it sure by pursuing godliness. The life we live demonstrates the authenticity of our call. And so everything we're doing in our lives, the way we're living our lives, the way we're pursuing Christ, the way that we're fighting sin, the way that we're seeking to promote holiness in our own life. All that is revealing, 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 revealing who we are, what we trust, whether or not we're really called. John Murray says this, The life into which the people of God are ushered is one that separates them from the fellowship of this present evil world. If we find ourselves at home in the ungodliness, lust, and filth of this present world, it's because we've not been called. The called belong to Jesus Christ, Romans 1-6, called to be his property and peculiar possession, and therefore they are called to be saints, Romans 1-7. The called must exemplify in their conduct the calling by which they've been called. The sovereignty and effect of the call of God does not relax our human responsibility, but rather grounds it and confirms it. It's a good word from John Murray. He's saying that when we're called, that we're called to belong to Jesus, to be his peculiar property and possession. And that we must exemplify in our conduct, our calling to which we've been called. So godliness is the second way. Assurance, godliness. So we've looked at four things so far. And then I'm going to close with this one. Courage for evangelism. Humility and patience and love and forbearance and unity. Assurance of our salvation. Godliness. And I close with this one. Worship. Worship. There is a reason. The ultimate reason. That God calls us the way he calls us. And we already read it in First Corinthians chapter 1. To put it negatively. So that we don't boast in ourselves. But to put it positively. So that we boast in Jesus. Believing. That we are called this way should motivate, move our affections such that we worship God with great vigor and joy. Because we have been the objects of his kindness and mercy and grace and affection. From all eternity, but also in our human experience from the very moment we believed. So a Christian, there's, there are lots of Christians that don't understand these things, but nevertheless boast greatly in Jesus. It's not those that I'm particularly concerned about. What I'm concerned about is if a Christian truly understands this and says, no, no, rejects it. That's not good. That's not good. We as Christians, we should hear this stuff. And it should melt us to the core. And we should be realizing I hung by such a thin thread. And God snatched me, and He's got me in His hand. He's never going to let me go. Because God grabbed me, He got a hold of me. He was the one, He was the chief agent, He was the main actor, He was the principal person in my salvation. He acted, He chose he predestined, he foreknew, and he called. And believing that we're called in this way gives God more glory than if we didn't believe it. Because we are ascribing all the benefit that came to us as authored by him. So we don't boast in ourselves, we boast in Jesus. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your call. Thank you for authoring it. You called us into fellowship with your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that it's came through the gospel and thank you that it's headed toward eternal glory and eternal life. And if we're called, we were justified. If we're justified, we're going to be sanctified. If we're sanctified, we're going to be glorified. Thank you for not only working out salvation, but working in salvation. We boast exclusively, only, entirely, and completely in you this morning. Acknowledging nothing in ourselves and everything in you. And so we boast in the Lord. In Jesus' name.